Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that He gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. When we've messed up and we have hurt somebody, what do we want? I mean really messed up. We deeply hurt someone we loved. We've betrayed them. We've destroyed trust. We've done something incredibly stupid and selfish. We've been caught, and now we feel deep sorrow and regret. What do we want? Forgiveness. Absolutely, forgiveness. We want assurance that we haven't lost the relationship, that there's some hope that the relationship can be restored. And Moses and the Hebrews were there. God had freed them from 400 years of slavery. He walked them through the Red Sea, through the wilderness. But when Moses was up on Mount Sinai and God was giving the Ten Commandments, the Israelites lost hope. They rebelled. They made a golden calf as an idol and they started to worship it. God wanted to completely wipe them out. But Moses stepped in, he interceded, and he pleaded with God, and so God didn't do it. There were some that died because of their sin, yes, but he didn't wipe out all of Israel. And then Moses pleaded with God. He said, you're about to lead us somewhere, and I need to know that you're going with us. And he did this twice. And twice God assured him that he was with them. Moses did something a very bold move after this, and he said, but God, can I see your glory? Can I see you? I got to know that you really are going with us, that you still love us. And what was followed was God's self-declaration of his nature, of his glory. The whole Bible is God's way of letting us know who he is, who he is at his core, But Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, is just a very short, condensed list of what I think God considers his most important attributes. It is what the Hebrews and Moses absolutely needed to hear after their rebellion. And this is what it says. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive inequity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children to the third and fourth generations. This is the first time in the Bible that God self-declares who he is. And for the Hebrews, this was a huge deal. So much that it is actually repeated 27 times in the Old Testament. And echoes or partial lists of this are repeated more than 100 times. Most of the time when you find it in the Bible, it's going to be when people have messed up. 
when they've done something bad and they're trying to come back to God and say, I'm seeking your forgiveness. People like Jonah, for instance. Jonah said, I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn your back from destroying people. Do you see the partial list of those attributes here? Exodus 34, 6-7 is our current sermon series. We've been sitting in this for a while, and we're just calling it Glory. So good morning and welcome to Mountain View Fellowship. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I just need to let you know on something. Um, almost annually, this time of year, I tend to get a head cold, and then it settles in my throat and my chest, and that's kind of where we are today. So if I start coughing, the, the sound folks are going to turn it down so I don't blow you out. I think the actual cause is I'm allergic to the time change. I think that's what it is. Um, before I dive into this, um, I just want to do something a little special. This morning is a major milestone in the life of Mountain View Fellowship, and you may not know it. But right now, down the hallway in Noble, is our first Spanish-speaking service. Yeah. And... And it is going on right now. So Pastor Miguel is teaching, and so if, let's just pray together as a, as a family, okay? Here we go. Heavenly Father, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, the God of all nations and all tongues, we thank you this morning that you have been doing amazing things moving this ministry forward. We have been praying for, for years and you have allowed Pastor Miguel and his family to come here to be called here. Lord, I just pray that um, this ministry is just, just, you make it blossom. We know that there are literally tens of thousands of people here on the eastern plains of Colorado that need you in both English and Spanish. And so you are just opening up a huge new door that our church can step in and do your kingdom work in a whole new way. And I just pray that you... Just bless this ministry, that you help Miguel and Sonia and their family and their core team that they're gathering just to be able to do amazing ministry. Let today just be looked on with favor that um, this is the very beginning, and before long, you're just going to blow the doors off the place, and we're going to see you move in a mighty way. Thank you, Lord, for letting us partner with your work in the world. In your name, amen. All right, so this morning, let's, uh, let's continue walking through these attributes that God has given us. The last four weeks, we've been walking through them, and today I'm going to do kind of the last portion of the, the passage, although there is one more week in the series. And I think it's just good for us to review these characteristics to begin with, all right? So here we go. God begins with his name, Yahweh, passed in front of Moses, calling out Yahweh, Yahweh. Now, you look on the screen, you'll actually see it, it says it as Y-H-W-H, okay? Now, here's why. Um, the Israelites were so afraid of violating the third commandment, using the Lord's name in vain, that when they heard his name, what they started to do is only write it down without vowels, okay? So you just have these, the consonants of his name. And in fact, years later, when they would read this out loud in temple or whatever, they would actually just say, the name. They wouldn't even try to get close to what it meant. They would just say, the name, and everybody knew. So today, when we see these, we actually say the word Yahweh. 
Now that is probably not the correct way to pronounce it. The correct way has been lost in history because for a thousand years the Israelites, the Hebrews would not say it out loud. Uh, English translations today typically do this, like here. They basically capitalize the word Lord in lower key, or in small caps, okay? So when you're reading your Bible, anytime you see the Lord in small caps, know that that actually is Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, okay? And so this morning as we go through, I'm just going to substitute every time in our English versions we have that, I'm just substituting Yahweh to get the point, okay? Now why does God start with saying Yahweh, Yahweh? He repeats it twice. Well, part of it has to do with Hebrew poetry. We kind of know that when the name is repeated twice, the tone is not one of an angry father. It's much more of a nurturing, warm feeling while still being holy. The other thing is God's name is so incredible. We just sang a song, your name, right? So it bears that it should be repeated twice. It's the declaration of who he is. And then he dives in and he says, I am the God of compassion. Compassion is that first attribute. It's interesting that it's first. Compassion involves emotion and empathy at the same time. Basically, God is saying, I'm not distant from you. I feel and I experience your joy and your sorrow as we go through life together. The God of compassion and mercy and grace. And having just sinned, the Israelites and Moses definitely wanted to hear this. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. In other words, not getting a punishment. And grace is getting what we don't deserve, like forgiveness. Many English translations will either have one or the other, grace or mercy here. But the Hebrew word at this point, the best way to translate it is actually the two together, like merciful grace. Okay. Then God said, I am slow to anger. And you'll hear echoes of this throughout Scripture. For instance, James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to be angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life God desires. It's interesting, though, when you read the original Hebrew. Uh, literally, it says, I am long of nostrils. That's bizarre, right? Certainly, we just don't quite understand what that means. When you peel it back, you'll see that it's a Hebrew idiom. Um, a lot, number of times in Scripture, when it talks about somebody being angry, it says that they were hot of the nose, okay? Now, I'm, I'm a redhead Irish, right? So when I get mad, my face is red, right? You know that I'm angry. Um, and my nose gets hot, right? So if you have a long nose it means it takes longer for you to get angry, right? That's the idiom, okay? And what it really means is that God just doesn't strike out. He's not waiting up there for you to screw up and he's got the lightning bolt and zap, right? That's not who he is. Now, depending on the family that you grew up in, this may be a hard attribute for you to hold on to because maybe in your family, anger was quick, Maybe there was verbal abuse or even physical abuse. And so holding on to this attribute that God is not that way is something you need to embrace and work through. He continues and he says, I am abounding with unfailing love or covenant love or loyal love. 
The, the Hebrew word here is kased, and kased is very difficult to translate in any language because it's, it's really not just one thing. It's three things put together, love, generosity, and enduring commitment all rolled together. And so the different English translations struggle a little bit. You'll see some things like abounding with love, filled with love, overflowing with love, meaning it's not limitless. And then what kind of love? Loyal love, steadfast love, unfailing love, covenant love. Covenant being a promise that can't be broken, right? And I know you're, you're sitting there going, wait a moment, Mike. Um, God gave this covenant to the Israelites, and it was the things that they were supposed to do, and if they didn't, they would be punished. How is that covenant love? Don't confuse his conditional blessing in a covenant with his unconditional love in the covenant. And then the next attribute is faithfulness. God is faithful. He's with us for the long haul. Unlike us humans, he is not fickle. He's not going to change his support. Deuteronomy 31.6 says, It's Yahweh your God who's going with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's a promise we can hold on to as well. I think it's pretty cool when you put those last two together, love and faithfulness, you get the next sentence. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. Together it's so powerful and comforting. God abundantly loves and is faithful to the people who turn to him. I love the thousand generations. That's quite a hyperbole. That's, that's an exaggeration in some ways, but it makes the point. We might say that he loves us to the moon and back. Well, he actually created the moon so that we could love him, right? It's one of his signs. And then there's forgiveness. I forgive inequity, rebellion, and sin. And forgiveness is something definitely Moses and the Hebrews long for after their rebellion. Many times again in Scripture, it's mentioned over again, and the list comes back up. I think the different authors in the Bible repeat the list so, A, they can hear it themselves and go, okay, that's who God is, and he's gonna, he still loves me. But they may have also been kind of subtly going, hey, God, Do you remember you said this? Can you act that way towards me? Right? They wanted to know that their relationship was okay, even though they sinned. We long for that, honestly, as well, when we screw up. But, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. We love this list of attributes up until the but, right? We love talking about God's love, but maybe not justice. Scripture actually tells us that we are under and subject to God's wrath because of our sin. And we know it. And so justice isn't very comfortable. With our 21st century minds, when we read this, we go, that's unfair. How can a loving God punish children for something that their great-grandparents did, right? And so whenever we hit things in Scripture that bump against what we believe or what we feel, and at times maybe even feel like God is wrong, what we need to do is some simple steps. 
We need to pray about it. We need to study it. And then we need to surrender to the truth that he's trying to tell us. So let's walk through that today. Let's go ahead and pray right now. Heavenly Father, thank you for this list of attributes. And I thank you that it does include your justice. It's hard for us to swallow that at times. And so this morning, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you just illuminate this text for us. Help us understand what this means so that we can live in sync with you and we can follow you completely. To you, God, belongs all the glory. Amen. Now, before we get to the greater part of me kind of walking through what justice means and everything, I want to just specifically deal with this bit here and just kind of handle how we probably are reading it incorrectly when we first start, okay? We first start, we go, wait a moment, that's just not fair. That's not the way it is. But understand, numerous places in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it says over and over again that each one of us is accountable for our actions, Not for others' actions, but for the choices and behavior we do, okay? Deuteronomy 24, 16 puts it this way. Parents must not be put to death for the sins of their children. Amen. Nor children for the sins of their parents, and that's good too. Those deserving to die must be put to death for their own crimes. And it's repeated many, many places. Scripture doesn't contradict itself, although sometimes we think it does for a bit until we understand it. So just to begin with, it is not saying here that kids are accountable for what their great-grandparents did, that they will be punished for what somebody else did. So this laying of the sins on the third and the fourth generation has to mean something different. Know, however, that sin always has consequences. What our parents do good or bad, impacts us. How they model behavior, uh, the coping mechanisms we learn from them, life perspectives, values, priorities. It absolutely impacts us, how we think. And we see cycles of sin and issues all the time in families. Families sometimes, they just have an issue that they struggle with. Anger, lust, addiction, violence, betrayal, whatever it is. Sometimes people use the term uh, generational sin. I would counsel against maybe being careful how you use that. Most of the time I encounter when somebody does that, they're not saying, hey, I'm observing this cycle in my family. It's more they're saying, I blame my parents for the way I'm acting. And you can't do that. Transformation and change is always available through Christ. And we have to make that choice to be different. So what does laying of the sins really mean? Well, we have to look at the context, the text around it, the way the original audience who got this would have heard it. And there's a couple things that pop out. First of all, at this point, Hebrew families had three or four generations living in the same tent or house. And so when sin and shame happened, definitely the whole family was affected. The reputation of the family was you know, smudged, right? You'd be walking down the street and they go, oh, here comes the son of so-and-so. And And remember what he did, right? You're absolutely affected. In the case of Scripture, there's a couple stories. There's Korah and his rebellion against Moses and Aaron that you can read about in Numbers 16. Or a guy named Achan who had greed at Jericho. You'll read about that in Joshua chapter 7. 
In these cases, everyone in their family, everyone in their tents were actually wiped out and killed. And it's because of their sin. But also know that everyone in the tents was complicit in their sin. They helped steal stuff with Achan. They helped uh, rebel with Korah, right? So they were all being accountable for what they participated in. The second thing is just to know, again, there's another little Hebrew idiom that's at work here. When you read the original Hebrew, it'll just say, to the third and to the fourth. It doesn't have the word generations, okay? And that idiom, just like the long of nose meaning anger, the idiom to the third and to the fourth basically means to do whatever it takes, okay? So God knew the way us humans work, that we repeat sins, we return to them. Think about the history of Israel. How many times as they're leaving Egypt, they want to go back to Egypt? Or the book of Judges, which is the cycles of sin where everybody forgets about who God is and then cries out for help. Or if you've read First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles, you know that it's, it's a broken record as you read through that, right? It goes bad king, worst king, mediocre king. And then each time it says, they did what their fathers did before them. They repeated. And so what God was really trying to do is he's saying, I am the God of justice and it's intention with being the God of grace and love. And just because you have that grace doesn't mean you get to go do whatever you want to. You're still accountable for your sins. And if I punish your sins, your parents' sins, it doesn't mean you have a free pass. You still have to make your choices. So God is going to do whatever it takes to the third and to the fourth for you to learn to turn to him. Basically, laying the sins on the other generations is a teaching method to help us learn and to turn a different way. Does this make sense? Okay. Now let's talk about the bigger picture of justice, which is what I really think this passage is pointing towards. And part of our problem with justice is the fact that at times it just doesn't seem like it exists in our world, does it? There was a prophet named Habakkuk, and he had the same problem, and he wrote out these complaints to God. One of them was, oh, oh long, how long, O oh Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I am surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed, and there's no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous, so that justice has become perverted. Does it sound a bit like today? A little bit. Habakkuk's cry is not unique in Scripture. Tons of the Psalms, when you read them, have the same exact cry. For Habakkuk, God answered back. And he basically said, justice does happen. Righteousness does win. But it happens on God's timetable. And we have to trust his perspective, his control, and his methods, not our own. The justice of God cannot be evaluated just on short-term basis. It has to include the here and now, but also tomorrow and eternity. And when we look at it that way in God's perspective, we see that justice is always served. Now, what does the term justice mean? 
the Hebrew word for justice is a word called misbat, and it occurs over 400 times in the Old Testament. And there's a related word that we often translate as righteousness, which occurs over 130 times. So this is a big deal to God for him to spend so much time talking about it. Now, misbat, like a lot of the other words we've talked about, has tons of nuance. And so going from Hebrew to English, it's not as simple as just saying justice. I'm finding more and more that when we have spiritual conversations with people, we have to work on the definitions of what we're talking about first, right? Um, English language is pretty fluid, especially it seems like these days. Meanings of words kind of move around quite a bit. Um, As an example, do you guys know the worship song, In Christ Alone? Uh, It was written about 20 years ago or so. Um, There's kind of a controversy going on right now, a little thing of people are trying to change the words of the song. And this is the line, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And they're saying satisfied only means that God was pleased that Jesus died. But 20 years ago, and it's still part of the definition today, satisfied could also be understood as meaning completed or paid in full. If you look at the Webster's, it's actually paid in full is one of the defs. Um, And so God was not happy about Jesus, but it satisfied it. It's a legal term. We still use today. You satisfy the terms of a contract, right? So again, words... They're fluid. We've got to make sure we have the same definition. And so when we talk about justice, it's going to mean different things to different people. Many of us equate it with fairness or equity. Some of us only think of it in terms of kind of the legal system, guilt and innocent, punishment for crime. There's a Harvard law professor named Michael Sandel, and he has a theory that I kind of believe that our society today in the U.S., basically has three perspectives on justice, and most of us only prescribe to one of them, okay, at a time. Let's walk through those three definitions for a moment. One is that justice is maximizing welfare or happiness. This is all about equity. It may actually mean redistributing things so people have an equal share. Second one, justice is respecting freedom and human dignity. This is all about fairness but it also is about rights of the marginalized. And the third one, justice is honoring and respecting virtues. It's about morality and law. So of these three, maximizing welfare, rights and freedom, morality and law, which one, without holding your hands, without raising your hands, which one is the biblical view of justice? You probably have an opinion, right? Let me muddy that just a little bit. I'm gonna throw some political terms next to these words, right? Maximize welfare is socialism. Rights and freedom is libertarianism or liberalism. And morality and law is conservatism. So which one is the biblical view? Did your vote change once I threw up the political term? What's the actual answer? All three together. That's justice. And the problem is, particularly today, we put a single political view often on what the Bible says, and that's how we read it. All three aspects of justice are actually rooted in the biblical narrative. And then we have a major problem if we limit our perspective in thinking only to one. Now, I know I'm probably not going to make some friends today. I'm poking the bear. I'm bringing up politics and religion at the same time. 
Thankfully, I'm not talking about death and taxes, so we're okay. But I want you just to stick with me and hear it out. The truth is that we can never have a fully biblical-based political candidate running for office because they have to embrace all three of these divisive political systems. And there is no political party that's going to put them up to run because all of our political parties are so narrowly focused these days. And by the way, it's also true that there are born-again Christians in each of these political ideologies who firmly believe they're following what the Bible has told them to do. And if you go back 100 years when all of these ideologies were starting as political parties in the U.S., you will find that all of them started believing that they were using biblical basis for their party. They were all biblically based. Now, you may not believe me on this, but let's just walk through for a few moments a few verses from just from the New Testament, looking at each of these perspectives. Let's start with maximized welfare. How about this well-known one? Acts 2, 44 to 45. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. Or how about the words of Jesus on this one? Matthew 19. Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. How about freedom and the rights of the marginalized? James 1.27, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Or the words of Jesus in Luke 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, the blind will see, and the oppressed will be set free. And then law morality. Romans 2, but because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when the Lord's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. And then Jesus' words, Matthew 12. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. And I tell you this, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. The words you say will either acquit you or condemn you. Now, I didn't give you any Old Testament verses in this, but rest assured there are plenty that also go in these three perspectives. I think Psalm 146 summarizes all three well. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but here's just a short portion. He gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. Yahweh frees the prisoners. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh lifts up those who are weighted down, and Yahweh loves the godly. Yahweh protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphans and widows, and he frustrates the plans of the wicked. Did you catch all three? Three perspectives in that? Now let's get back to our, our justice in that Exodus verse. There is a tension in these verses here. A tension between the earlier attributes of compassion and grace, slow to anger, faithful, loving, forgiving, and then justice. At least it seems like a tension because we are under that judgment and we don't really want to think much about justice. But perhaps tension is not the right word. Maybe justice is actually required for those other attributes. You see, you can't have mercy without justice. You can't have grace without justice. 
And you can't have real love without justice because if you just have open love that's completely unconditional with no boundaries, are you really loving that person? And Jesus, or and justice came through Jesus for all of these. Jesus' role on the cross, dying on the cross for our sins as a substitutionary sacrifice for each one of us, taking on our sins, he answered all three aspects of justice. You see, Jesus maximized forgiveness when he died for all. But each one of us have to accept it. He freed us, the spiritually poor, from slavery to sin and death. But we have to accept it. And Jesus paid the penalty and completed or satisfied the requirements of the law with his death as the perfect sacrifice. But again, we have to accept it. On Veterans Day, which we just had, we will often say freedom isn't free. As Christians, we should often say grace isn't free because Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Romans 6 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have forgiveness and justification and redemption and victory over sin only, only because Jesus acted on our behalf and fulfilled, completed the requirements of God's justice. So if Jesus has completed all of those requirements, what are we supposed to do with it? Well, we as disciples of Christ are supposed to be transformed all the time, changed, so that we act and behave and believe more and more like Jesus and God. Which means we have to get into a heart posture where we are living out God's character, being compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and loving and faithful and forgiving and engaging in all three perspectives of justice. I love how Micah 6.8 puts it. No, O people, Yahweh has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We are to treat others fairly and just, because that's what God does for us, and that's who he is. And we have to do this, and we can only do it if we're in constant relation with him, walking through life humbly, ready to be corrected, to learn, and to change. Zechariah 7 says it this way, This is what Yahweh of heaven's armies says, Judge fairly and show mercy and kindness to one another. Do not oppress widows, orphans, foreigners, and the poor, and do not scheme against each other. Again, all three forms of justice are here. And the message is that we have to emulate God in our actions. I like this verse too. The reason why these these are highlighted is theologians will call this the quartet of the vulnerable. Widows, orphans, foreigners, and the poor. And while God does not show favoritism, he does have a special affinity for this group. Um, I think today we could probably throw elders into widows, just the way it kind of works out and the way that we care for them. These four groups are together multiple times in Scripture, in Old Testament and New Testament. Even Psalm 146 had it, if you caught it. And it's God's judgment criteria whether society is just or not. 
if we were judged, our society, of how we treat these four groups, would we be just or not? And I know I'm entering into a whole nother sermon, sermon series here, talking about the quartet of the vulnerable. But let me just say that I, I'm bringing it up as we enter into the holidays. It may be a great time for us to ponder and meditate and reflect on what are we doing personally in regards to these four groups? Are you engaged? One last thought on justice. Just a warning, don't make justice your idol. It's really easy to do. It's easy, particularly if we have the mindset of morality and law, that that's what we see and we forget the others. It's also really easy with all the other attributes of God, too. We can be all about God's love or all about his grace. And after a while, we actually make an idol of those things instead of God. When we focus on one and at the exclusion of all the other attributes of God, we are essentially making him one-sided. And we're not seeing God's entire nature working in concert. Remember that all of Yahweh deserves all of the glory, not just one part of them. So who is God? To those in need, God is compassionate. To the fallen, God is gracious. To the rebellious, God is slow to anger. To the faithful, God is to the unfaithful, God is faithful with loyal love. To the guilty, God is forgiving, but to the unrepentant, God is just. Let's go ahead and pray together. Heavenly Father, Yahweh, we come before you as broken people. We often rebel against you. We often see things just in our own perspective and not yours. I am so thankful that you have given us this list of, of attributes of who you are. And I pray that you work in each one of our hearts to help us see that. And not only see it, you, you want us to be that way. And so, Holy Spirit, I just pray this week that you work on the rough edges of our lives, things that may, maybe we're not, we're missing one of these attributes, or maybe we're not seeing all of justice. And I just pray that you work on that so that we can become better lights for you. I pray that you help each one of us take a step forward for us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. Jesus, thank you that you did come to complete the big requirements of God's justice because of our sin. That you chose to die on the cross for each one of us. And forgiveness, atonement, and justification are all through you because of that. Help us live in a way that we reflect your glory to others. Not for our own glory, all for you. And all of God's people said,